Hello everyone, I'm Naya Swami Asha. This is class number two of the study course, The Essence of Self-Realization, based on this collection of the wisdom of Paramahansa Yogananda, compiled by Swami Kriyananda. This is the 1990 edition of this book, so it looks a little different now, but the insides are just the same. This is the one I had on my shelf, and only after I started did I realize that you wouldn't necessarily recognize it. Um, The second chapter is called The True Purpose of Life. What Master, through Swamiji, is building here is a a gradual um, progression of ideas to lead us into the necessity for spiritual life and then gradually how to live it. So the first chapter was called The Folly of Materialism, and that's what we talked about in our last session, about the imaginary idea that material things can make you happy. Swamiji was fond of quoting an exchange he had with a friend in India and how the friend started by saying, you in the West sometimes don't respect us in India because we have all these gods and goddesses and this attitude of God's presence in so many things and you think we're superstitious. But then the Indian said to Swami, he said, what could be more superstitious than the idea that material, inert material things can actually give you happiness. And I thought that was extremely well put. And so that was the first, what we talked about last week, was the folly of materialism. Chapter 2 is called The True Purpose of Life. And there are 12 entries here, and I'll go through the chapter to a certain extent. But at the beginning, I wanted to just talk about this in its overall, because this is a, a, a kind of an issue that I, I've had to deal with a lot in all my years of trying to share with people the teachings of Master. Um, you know, each of us offers um, what we understand, and Master had a certain perspective on reality, and Swamiji dedicated himself to Um, translating uh, what was often, he described Master's just, you know, intuitive flow. Swami had to fill in a lot of the blanks. When he talked about the, fill in the the intuitive leaps, when Swamiji talked about editing Master's writings, he edited the Gita commentary, he edited the Rubaiyat commentary, um, he wrote Revelations. Um, Swamiji was saying, the obvious question people ask sometimes is, why would a Master's writings have to be edited? And Swamiji said, because Master just brings down from a very high level the understanding, the interpretation of what um, the scripture actually means. But as Swamiji described it, I, he used that phrase, Master made lots of intuitive leaps that you, you can't necessarily, if you don't have his consciousness, they're hard to follow. So Swamiji tried to fill in a lot of those intuitive leaps with the steps that would take you from one to another. And that way then you could grasp the essence of what Master was teaching um, more deeply. Swamiji uh, helped us to to understand it more. And also, of course, um, a Master speaks from his perception of reality, which we're trying to reach, and we need to know what the view is from there. But all of us have steps that we have to go through. And in my own life experience... I feel a lot of what I've been asked to do is I hear what Swamiji says and I listen very attentively and I 
study very carefully what he writes. And then from my perspective, which is uh, certainly not his, I try to share with others sort of how do we get from here to there. So one of the specific fundamentals of the spiritual path, which uh, Master touches repeatedly in here, and it's, it's epitomized perfectly by this quote from Krishna, which is entry number two in chapter two. Get away, Krishna says, from my ocean of suffering and misery. And that's sort of the basic um, appraisal of life in this world and material life. And a lot of times when someone like myself even I'm talking about the incentive to be on the spiritual path, one necessarily makes a contrast with the disappointing nature of the material life. And then very often I have people rebel against that. Well, there's lots of beautiful things about life, they'll say, and they'll kind of stiffen up if they hear me or someone talking too much about what an awful place this planet is. So it's a nuance of understanding uh, that, that is based on two things. One, it's, it's based on sufficient experience. And I don't just mean experience in one incarnation, although that can help. But sufficient experience over many incarnations in which we have paid attention very carefully um, to, to the difference between the appearances and the reality of this world. And our superficial experience of this world and the accumulative result of certain attitudes and actions. Swamiji has often commented that one of the great advantages of a community is it's kind of a, a, a little bit of a laboratory of human life. He said you, you, you get to see the fruit of certain actions and certain attitudes over the course of 40 years you can just watch people who hold to right spiritual attitudes and people who hold to attitudes that are less consistent with the teachings of the masters and the scriptures. And you can see how much happiness or suffering each one produces. And Swamiji would often make, uh, it has often made in his life, did often make in his life, very sweeping generalizations like, get away from my ocean of misery. Or he would talk about the all-pervasive unhappiness of so many people in the world or the all-pervasive dissatisfaction of the pursuit of certain goals, the resulting dissatisfaction if certain goals were made the center point of your life. And in my 20s and even into my 30s, I would cringe sometimes at the uh, generalities. But now in my 60s, and this is just the fruit of living 40 more years, um, I see how true what he says was about how profoundly disappointing um, so many lives turn out to be. Uh, And Master explains it all in here. And the reason I'm saying this is that it's very important for us to thread our way through this in exactly the right way because we don't want to foolishly reject ideas that need to be taken seriously. In my years with Swamiji, and even referring to some of my resistance to some of the things he said early on, 
um, early on in my life. They were not early on in Swami's. Uh, Just a moment, I may be sneezing here. No, it seems to have passed. The threat has passed. I always had too much respect for Swamiji as an individual and also as a senior disciple and a direct disciple of Master to to assert my opinion against his. You know, you say this, Swamiji, but I think this is true. I, I would do that, but not often. And when I did, I was, well, I'll say it categorically, always wrong. In fact, Swamiji said to me once, when he made a suggestion and I was arguing with him, he said, Asha, you always agree with me in the end, so just stop and think about it and don't say anything more now. He finally got so impatient, that's what he said. And then after that, I behaved differently. But sometimes I simply couldn't grasp his point of view, as I said, especially in, say, the first 10 years. But I couldn't reject it either, so I, I shelved it, is what I did. I just put it in a little box and put it in a far-off part of my mental closet. So it wasn't always interrupting my perception of things, but nor had I actually rejected it. And then, as often happens with things that we store away because we're not interested in them at the time, you take it down later and it suits you exactly now. And so many of his ideas, which I simply wasn't big enough in life experience or consciousness to comprehend, after a while they just began to make a lot of sense to me. So this way that Master has of speaking about human life But the nuance here, and this is the nuance that I want to emphasize, that he also, Master also, very carefully always includes. For example, I'll read now the rest of of number two, which I only read part of it. Get away, Krishna said, from my ocean of suffering and misery. Then Master goes on to say, With God, life is a feast of happiness, but without him, it is a nest of troubles, pain, and disappointment. So what Master is saying, and I'll, I'll quote others as we go on through this hour, is not that everything is awful and therefore we should search, seek, seek God. It's that the only thing that will really finally give us satisfaction is that experience of God. In a later one he says, let me just see if I can find exactly how he puts it. He says, the purpose of human life, this is number 12, is to find God. That is the only reason for our existence. Jobs, friends, material interests, in themselves, these mean nothing. They can, and then this is the key point, they can never provide you with true happiness for the simple reason that none of them in itself is complete. Only God encompasses everything. So what, what Swamiji and what, what Master, because these are just Master's words, these are all Master's words. This is not Swami's editing or um, editorializing, I mean. He's, he merely compiled this, so all these are, are Master's words. Is not that job, family, friends, etc. are inherently awful or to be scorned in some way, but they are not enough. And, and that's just the simple... Uh, the simple reality, it's just not enough. But if we, and then he goes on to say in that very same one, that's why Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek first the giver of all gifts, and you shall receive from him all lesser gifts as well. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that you'll then have job, home, family, friends. But the lesser gifts are the, the extra things that in and of themselves are not complete, but with the presence of God in the center, everything becomes a cause for celebration. But if we're seeking our satisfaction at the edge of reality, this is the way I, I think about it when I'm often teaching related subjects, trying to explain related ideas. I, I imagine uh, in the community that I live in here in Palo Alto, outside my window are a lot of trees. I'm sitting in my living room right now and I'm looking out the window at all those trees. And there's this one particular elm, which is, uh, I think it must be the guru tree of the, of the five acres on which we live. It's very large. And it's large in, in, in height and expansion. And because there are other trees around, often you don't realize when you're looking at branches that seem quite distant from the, what you consider to be the origin point, from where you think of that tree standing, you don't realize that even these very far extended branches and leaves all trace their source back to that one trunk. Well, that one trunk is like for us, it's literally like the spine, but it's also like um, our relationship to God. Just as the roots of the tree go into the earth and they get their power from there, so we ourselves, if we wish to live correctly, we, we are rooted in our lives, in our relationship to God. And everything depends on those roots. I mean, no matter how far the tree extends into the air, no matter how powerful those branches are, if we injure the roots of that tree, if you injure the roots of any tree, the, tree, the whole tree will die or it will lose its balance and fall over. In our temple here in Palo Alto also, we have a very large um, fir tree of some kind, I'm not cedar tree, that sits right in, the, in our central courtyard. And we, when we remodeled the whole courtyard, we had to spend a lot of time trying to understand where the roots of that tree went. And in the end had to leave a large open area around the roots of that tree. We set patio up everywhere else, but we had to leave the, the roots intact or else even though it looks enormously strong, it would have fallen over. Now, the, that tree, that huge elm coming back to this one, even those far branches that seem quite distant from its source are, are enlivened, kept alive, guided, and created from the trunk. And what happens to us in life is if we understand that our quest for God and our search for God, seek ye first the kingdom of God, is the source of, of all the satisfaction we will ever have in life and the source of the, of the true fulfillment that we really seek. From that, we can extend our branches out in all directions, and those leaves then will be bright and animated. Now, another aspect of that is oftentimes those leaves are vulnerable in ways that the trunk of the tree is not. They get pruned off by gardeners who think they're doing a good thing helping the tree. They get pruned off by God 
who knows that they're superfluous to your well-being or even detrimental. They get attacked by beetles. They get stripped away by wind. Malicious children come and cut them off. All kinds of things happen. If our sense of self and our sense of uh, satisfaction is based on one little leaf way out at the end of a branch and something happens to that leaf, we just fall to the ground from there. If our sense of satisfaction and that our self-definition, our source of fulfillment is from the trunk, then all those vulnerable little leaves can come and go. And we can participate, even at times celebrate or mourn, you know, the birth or death of those leaves. But nonetheless, our true self remains rooted and strong. Okay? Now, that's the balance point about understanding in the proper way and not feeling threatened is actually the word I want to use by the way in which Master just dismisses this world and tells us to seek another, get away from this ocean of suffering. The ocean of suffering is when we forget the trunk of the tree and try to squeeze our satisfaction from this tiny leaf. Now, here's the other reason why I think it's extremely important um, to understand this in the right way, which is that we have to be deeply sincere in our relationship with God. And we also have to grow the, uh, the, the tree of our self-realization in, in a way that, um, that actually will succeed. Um, an image that is, I think is very valid, that has fascinated me for some time, is the simple image of a seed. Master talks about this in lots of different places. A seed is so small. I, the, the seed that I often think about is an apple seed because uh, we have an apple tree in our backyard and I also am very fond of apples, so I eat them often. And so I see these tiny black seeds. I pick the apples from our tree or from other trees on our property or in our community. We have apple trees growing in several places. Wonderful apples, and inside of each one, there's a number of little seeds. And each one of those seeds, they're so small, but each one of those seeds has the full potential to become a huge apple tree that produces and produces more and more apples that can feed and shelter so many. But there is no way for that apple seed to become an apple tree without first moving progressively through every stage of development until that that tree is reached. No matter how eager or sincere that apple seed is, no matter how intensely it wants to live its dharma and become an apple tree, it just has to go through every single stage. It has to sprout, the sprout has to um, flourish, the sprout has to, to become a twig, the twig has to become a sapling, the sapling has to become a little tree, you know, all the way through. No stage can be skipped. But in our spiritual lives, we somehow imagine that we can become saints out of thin air. Or we can become saints out of our fervor to become saints. 
and the fervor is to become a saint rather than the fervor of developing through all those stages to become a saint. And some of these emphatic statements of the Master, which are there to awaken us from the delirium of false understandings, sometimes we we don't understand them in the right way. Um, And we try to paste upon ourselves from the outside attitudes that we wish we had because um, they sound better, because there's logic to them, because it's what Master exhorts us to do, and because we don't deeply and sincerely um, accept our, our actual reality. It's, it's a kind of egotism, egoism at least, egotism, uh, a belief that I can declare this reality and it will be so, rather than a calm acceptance um, that God and I together are going to reach the goal and we will succeed. But if I'm just a sprout, first I have to become a twig. And I can't just decide that twigdom is just a nuisance and who wants to be a twig Um, because it won't won't take me there. There's no shortcut. Sometimes we imagine that these exaggerated affirmations of our realization will get us there faster than just realizing this is the way I feel. Now, what this is about, and this is, I, I have to admit, I've had several experiences with people in the last, in the past week that have been so poignant to me because I see people at war with themselves, themselves, deeply at war with themselves, where their reality is simply that even though Master says that these things are not fulfilling and you have to transcend them, we don't really know that. You know, we're just, uh, uh, a sprout and being a sapling looks real attractive to us right now and we're told that we should be a tree but being a sapling looks real attractive to us right now I read something also in uh, class 27 which I just gave also this week on the um, Swamiji's commentary on the Patanjali Yoga Sutras and there's a very interesting um, nuance in there which relates exactly to this. Um, without giving that whole class, you can go online and find it, class 27. I think it's Sutra 2, 3, second book, third sutra, third or fourth, something like that. Uh, Patanjali, in that case, is talking about imperfections, meaning that c- commitments we have to other than the purity of the divine. And he talks about superficial ones, sporadic ones, and then what he calls sustained imperfections. And he lists there, you know, some of the most obvious. Uh, one of the most foundational is the desire for a romantic partner. You know, to have somebody to love and someone to love you. And the corresponding wish for a home, for the security, for children, all of, all of those things. E- easy to write about but difficult, truthfully, to renounce. And then Swamiji in the commentary puts it like this. You can be relieved of these sustained imperfections by the grace of God, by an act of grace from God. Such a thing can be dissolved in you. But almost always, instead, 
We simply have to live through the experience and we have to learn from the experience. And from the experience, we find out. You know, we, we become a twig and we grow through twig stage. And so we're human beings and we want comfort. And we want personal love. And we want the satisfaction of and the fun of raising children. And it doesn't serve us to pretend to be something that we're not. First of all, we don't fool God at all. I've often told you in a completely other context of a a two-year cycle I went through with Swamiji early on again in my first decade in which I pretended to have a more mature spiritual attitude than I actually had. And I was always calculating my responses to match what I thought I should be. I thought, this is what a good disciple would say, and this is what I'll say. And Swamiji just pushed on me and pushed on me in many complicated ways until I just couldn't sustain the facade anymore. The facade just collapsed into my actual reality. I was like, a, I was dressed in a sapling costume and I was just a twig. And finally the sapling costume just collapsed and the twig was revealed. And Swamiji just said to me, sweetly, but, but firmly, you never fooled me. It was very instructive. You never fooled me. I always could see what you really were. And what I really was was just fine. I was just a twig. I just had to be a twig before I could be a sapling. And so even though we can read Master's words, we can read Christian's statements and perhaps recognize that that's how Master sees it, but we also have to realize that maybe I don't really know that yet. We don't reject what he said. That would be wrong. We don't fight against it. No, this is a beautiful world. No, Krishna says it's an ocean of suffering. Let's take that thought seriously. Without God, and that's the important point, it's nothing but misery. With God, it's all happiness. Living at, living from the trunk of the tree, the leaves are beautiful. But imagining that we actually are those leaves my romantic partnership, my children, my home, my money, that leaves us intensely vulnerable. And sooner or later, this world just collapses. That costume collapses on us. That misunderstanding, as Master says in here, you know, your dream of life vanishes into the infinite. When this body drops in death, where will your family be? Your home, your money. That's what he says in the first entry of this chapter. The body is only a plate given to you that you might eat from it, the feast of spirit. So let us try to keep God at the center even if the longing is there. Even if, like Swamiji says in the Patanjali commentary, these sustained imperfections, which are these deeply held desires that we need to experience the reality, the satisfaction, or the lack of satisfaction in them before we can really understand um, where our true fulfillment comes from. Now, sometimes God neither removes the desires nor fulfills them. And that is, yes, a very interesting place where we end up having to live. And so sometimes there's this constant struggle that goes on between our efforts to 
eradicate a desire that we might theoretically know is not in our best interest and the constant uh, recurring theme of that desire within us. I mean, this is... And and these experiences are, well, what make us strong, um, what, what, what test us to our limit. And we're being tested in our faith in God and our uh, confidence that Guru is really leading us progressively through what we really need to be led through. And and it helps then, whether we are in a state of disappointment or fulfillment, to really meditate on the words of Master, which is, what is the true purpose of life? Is it these experiences, or these experiences are these experiences merely a means to an end? To do my duty in the right way, but to do my duty in the right way is when with God, life is a feast of happiness. In other words, always know the source. And even as we experience outer enjoyments, you know, the birth of a child, the pleasure of raising him, the delight that uh, a love relationship can bring in our, to our lives, never move out so far to the limb that we forget the source. But always see everything as an extension of that divine reality. Then when the ephemeral nature of this life reveals itself, whether through sudden loss, um, gradual um, decay and change, which comes with age or illness or uh, those little children growing up into the big adults that we all become, I vividly remember, poignantly and heartbreakingly remember. For a certain period of time in my life, I was very close to my uh, father, the man who raised me. And uh, through my teens. But then when I was close to 20, I, I was just going to take my life to be my own. And he saw that. He saw that I was not really going to make my whole life with him. And I guess he thought I might. You know, to me, that's um, it was never really an option. But I guess he thought I might. I mean, some some people do. And when he saw me really moving away from him, well, it made him weep. And he said to me, only the child disappears into the adult. And it took me a long time in my life until I've never had children of my own, but I've witnessed um, the cycle. And I, I can feel in my own heart. Even then I could feel it, but I... I protected myself from it because I knew my my life did not belong to him and the world to which he belonged. I was born for another world because I very quickly moved on to Swami Kriyananda, to Ananda, to self-realization. That was my life. So there it was. He had to live through that. Would it have been better for him not to have loved me so much and for me not to have loved him so much? Of course not. Because it was a lovely time. He was very beneficial to me. And I think he enjoyed me. That it didn't prove to be everything that he desired it to be. Well, that's what we have to learn. That's what the experiences are there to teach us. How much fulfillment they can give us and how much fulfillment they can't give us. This is what Master says. They can't fulfill us because nothing but God is complete. 
because a child is just, how many incarnations have we had? How many parents have we had? How many children have we had? You know, we cling to each one as this is the final answer. And it's just simply false. He says here, uh, Swam, uh, Master says, let me just see it. God gave you intelligence. This is number three in this chapter. God gave you intelligence that you might use it properly to solve the mystery of your existence. He made you intelligent that you might develop the discrimination to seek him. Use the divine gift wisely. Not to do so is to do yourself the greatest possible injustice. My father was a very intelligent man because I'm speaking of him. He was educated. Um, He was um, effective to an extent in this world. But he wasn't wise. Well, let me phrase it differently. He wasn't spiritually wise. He was wise in many ways and taught me many fine things. But he didn't use his intelligence to solve the mystery of life. In fact, he used it a little bit in the wrong way, um, to cling to this life too much. And that's not the purpose of life. That's not why we were given it. This chapter is called The Divine Purpose of Life, The True Purpose of Life. And so... You see how all of these things can um, come together in just the right way. I was reading a a book recently, a very nice book. It's called My Years with Anandamoy Ma, or a name similar to that. It's by a woman named Batika Mukherjee, um, for those who who might enjoy reading about her. Anandamoy Ma is written up in Autobiography of a Yogi as the joy-permeated mother. She was a very great saint. Um, she lived until 1982 in India. And Batika Mukherjee and her whole family were devotees of Ma. So Batika knew her from a very young age, literally from, from childhood. And she quotes in there is, that all of that is incidental. But she quotes this conversation between a question and an answer between Ma and a visitor. And uh, Ma was very spontaneous in her answer. She was literally, literally illiterate. She never read a book. She signed her name with an X. Um, but she was uh, enlightened. So she didn't need the scriptures because she was the scriptures. But a man said to her, if everyone in this world worked for goodness, would this world uh, become perfect? And Ma looked at him and was sort of startled. And just her response was, but this world is perfect. Just like that, which of course is not how anyone sees it. So I was uh, meditating a little bit on what an interesting answer that was. And uh, recently, in some of the classes I've been given, I've been giving, I've been challenged a lot on that very point. You know, this desire to make this world better and the obligation we feel to make this world better. I was traveling in India and, of course, where there's so much of ostentatious ostentatious, that's a strange word, but apparent poverty. Everywhere you see poverty. The problems are just everywhere in terms of the material world. Living in Palo Alto, you see an occasional homeless person. It's not so much in your face. But don't we have an obligation to fix these things? It's hard. It gets complicated. But you see, perfection is what what would be a perfect world? The ego says. The ego wants ease, 
and pleasure. It, it wants to be comfortable. It wants things to go the way it thinks they ought to go. And when we're thinking in egoic terms, the ego is attached to the body, and that which pleases the body we think of as good. You know, I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be hungry. I don't want to be cold. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't necessarily want to have big challenges. I, I want to, I want ease and comfort. And other people are hungry and struggling against hard conditions. I want them too. I want them to have ease and comfort. That to me looks like a perfect world. And the extent to which disease or poverty or loneliness or dislocation affects people, then there's something wrong. Perfect is. Everybody's comfortable. Nobody struggles. But is that really the purpose of this world? The true purpose of life. That's the chapter we're working with. What is the true purpose of life? Is to just make this from birth to death just as nifty as we can make it? You know, just as comfy to have the right job and the right spouse and the right children? And one of my friends had such perfectly adorable children. I said that she got them out of a catalog. She just up, looked up little boy and got one of those. And then she looked up little girl and got another one and just picked them out. They were just so perfect. And they've all turned into fine human beings too. But it was, it was almost a joke. It was a, a, a picture perfect. And so is that what we want? Everything's just picture perfect, fits our conceptions, our preconceptions exactly. Is that the true purpose of life? Well, Master says, we're given intelligence in order to, to solve the mystery. Like, really, why am I here? How did I end up here? And what is the purpose? Now, intuitively we know that the true purpose of our existence is perfect happiness. The confusion we have is, where does that, what brings us that perfect happiness? And we look around at the world we see through the senses and the ego feeds us this idea that if we can just organize this according to my egoic preferences, then that would be perfection. In fact, Master answers the question of why do we reincarnate in a way that's actually really quite intriguing. He says, if this world were completely terrible, we'd never think of coming back to it, even though Krishna calls it an ocean of misery. If this world were completely a torture chamber, we would never think of coming back to it. But what Master says is the, the diabolical, and that's really the word for, for it, the diabolical problem here, that's not his word, I'm using it, is that it almost works. It's like everything is just right except for one small thing. You know, I never did have children or I did have children, or I married this person instead of that person, or I lived in such a cold climate, or I studied the wrong thing and then I couldn't get a job, or whatever it might be. If I could just adjust that one little thing, then it would be just right. So what draws us again and again to reincarnate is to just make that little adjustment. Because we know in our hearts that we are um, destined for bliss, that our true inheritance is perfect happiness, and we're, we're really not satisfied until we have it. But we imagine perfection in this world as if everybody could have that happiness just as we are, and that happiness defined by just what we presently know. That looks good to me. That's what I want. I mean, anybody of any experience in refinement, however, 
look back at those who have less awareness than you have and you can see that what they consider to be perfect happiness is really just the tiniest little glimpse. You know, a very um, person of gross appetites or a, somebody who only works with their physical body and you know, a good day is when they only have to labor in the fields half the day. They may not know the, um, the pleasures of good literature. They might not understand the joys of refined music. They might not recognize the excitement of creative work. I mean, there's so many pleasures and fulfillments that a, a more aware person um, embraces that a less aware person doesn't even know about. Thus, you know, in the pro- progress of a family, for example, if somebody finally goes to college and uh, assumes a profession, and it's such a big step up maybe from how they saw their parents labor or even as they had to labor in their early life, and the fulfillment is so much greater. So you have to ask yourself that question. If it's possible to progress, even in one incarnation, such a distance in terms of where we draw our satisfaction and the refinement of our experience, how much farther can it go? And so when Anandamoyi Ma says, but this life is perfect. This world already is perfect. It's perfect for the purpose for which it was established. And the purpose for which it is established is to teach us about the potential for God-realization. It's not established for us to have pure comfort and pure pleasure. And everybody on this planet, no matter how tough their karmic lot may be, is living through the true purpose of their life, which is they have sustained imperfections, sustained in the way I meant it with Patanjali, They have enduring imperfections that will not be removed merely by God snapping his fingers. Why should they be removed when what is really required is the experience so that the soul itself can understand, can use its intelligence to solve the mystery? There's another nuance of that which I'm going to try to articulate here, although I frankly admit I'm trying to work out this idea. I've always been a little um, unclear about how you balance the belief that God can work a miracle with the necessity to accept the fact that he's not going to. And I know sometimes people hold very strongly that you must believe in a miracle. And and you have all these little sayings, expect a miracle and so on. I myself even wrote a book that Swami's, uh, Swamiji assigned it to me. It's called Miracles and Answered Prayers. And I talked to lots of people about lots of interesting and miraculous things that happened to them. But I've always had a little bit of trouble when I'm faced with certain things impending death, um, serious physical ailments, um, disabilities in someone you love, a child that is not going to grow up to have what everybody else defines as a normal life. And believing that God can change those conditions, which is true, that the grace of God can dissolve all imperfections, 
and simultaneously accepting, ah, this is a necessary experience for the fulfillment that I seek. That God's not going to remove these experiences from us, usually, for reasons that we may not be able to fathom, we have to accept and live through it. And we have to bring God into it and live from the trunk of the tree rather than allowing even this seemingly quite central um, leaf to become the definition of our reality. I don't know if I've made that thought clear, but it's it's something that's very important to contemplate. Now let me think. I Oh yes, here it is. A friend of mine um, was diagnosed with a very serious case of cancer. And it started out as breast cancer. Um, at that point it wasn't that serious and she um, was treated and went on for quite a few years after. But then when it returned, she had become somewhat inattentive to the possibility of its return. And when it returned, it returned with a vengeance. And uh, it had quite metastasized and there was a lot to deal with. And for several years, um, she went through very intense treatments and very courageously and with a lot of devotion to God, just did what she had to do. But then the day came, finally, when the doctor said to her, there's nothing more we can do. Um, We have to turn to hospice now. There's no treatment. There's just uh, making you comfortable. The day that doctor's um, pronouncement came to her, um, intuitively I must have known without knowing because I, I, I went over to see her. Unscheduled, I just showed up. And she looked at me, it was so sweet, really, with tears in her eyes. She said, it may sound silly, she said, but I always thought I'd get well. And that belief sustained her up to the point where it it caused her to live longer and better than people thought she would. But then ultimately, God's grace was not going to remove this experience. It was simply going to have to be lived through, and she was going to have to learn whatever had to be learned. And I assured her, because I knew her and I believed in her, that she would be able to do it and that it would be a triumph for her spiritually, no matter how heartbreaking it might seem in a human way. And she did, in fact. She learned from the experience. And certainly, um, in the astral world and in her future incarnations, her awareness will be greater. And her attachment to the things of this world uh, will be lighter because she lived through that experience. Why would God take that experience away from her? Why would he buy his grace? You know, he'll take it away if you don't need anything from it. And in the meantime, it seems to me, and I don't want to be presumptuous because I myself have not been tested in this way, but it seems to me One should be eager to learn as much as you can from the experience as it's given to you. And let the learning with as much devotion as possible be the miracle rather than the dissolving of the circumstance by a wave of God's hand. Now, I want to be very clear, and I say this very sympathetically. This is something I myself have been wrestling with, and I've often been challenged in classes and, and not able to really clearly find my way through that. So 
I'm proposing it. The true purpose of life is to understand the deeper reality behind it. That nothing that we go through is in itself the purpose of life. It's the purpose of life only because this is a necessary experience for me to understand the deeper purpose of life. Job, family, friends, church, uh, friends, money, in themselves these mean nothing. Master also says it's very sweet here. He says, he's referring to this as in number seven. When Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, his meaning were that was that uh, some people, most people, he actually said, are dead but don't know it. They have no ambition, no initiative, no spiritual enthusiasm, no joy in life. What is the use of living that way, Master asks. He said, life should be a constant inspiration. To live mechanically is to be dead inside, even though your body is breathing. Now, this brings me back to the first theme. Even though Krishna says, get away from my ocean of suffering, my ocean of suffering is to live in this world without the awareness of God. And here, Master, Jesus says, the dead bury their dead. And Master um, laments that most people have no ambition, no enthusiasm, no spiritual enthusiasm, no joy. Master incarnated in a physical body and was a constant fountain of joy. I, I lived with Swami Kriyananda. He worked hard. He faced extraordinary challenges. At least they, they looked like that to us. Extraordinary tapasya on many different levels. But his own inner experience was one of joy. And that's what he communicated. Reading now about Ananda Moima, she lived a very long life and a, a very um, expansive life of spiritual service to others. And what those who knew her remarked about was she was just a constant fountain of joy. She had extreme compassion and sympathy for all the difficulties that everyone faced, but she lived in the experience of God. And Master says, the purpose of life is that. This life is perfect because it's quite possible right in the middle of this life, no matter what is happening, to have that experience of joy. And he says, Master says, the reason people's lives it says, are so dull and uninteresting <laughs> is that they depend on shallow channels for their happiness. They try to squeeze from something much too small a fulfillment of joy. Instead, Master says, of going to the limitless source of all joy within themselves. Somebody told me, this is the folly of materialism, that the uh, actual period of happiness that one gets from a new possession, averages out at 20 minutes. <laughs> it's one of those statistics, like, how did anyone figure that out? <laughs> I also make a distinction in my mind between a tool and a thing. Um, a computer, a good camera, if you're a, a photographer, you know, a fine musical instrument if you're a musician, it's a material object, but it's a tool for your own flow of energy. And therefore, the pleasure of using it can go on and on because it facilitates a flow of energy. But an example, in an apartment we lived in, in this community uh, for many years, at a certain point we changed the carpets. We'd been there 10 or 12 years and we changed the carpets. And 
um, if you're going to do something, you should do it with energy. So we put out a lot of energy to figure out what would be the best color and to find it. And we decided we wanted this sort of golden color, which turned out to be very hard to find. And it was a huge hoo-ha that went on for a number of weeks to finally find it, buy it, get it delivered, get it installed. And when it was finally installed in the whole apartment and all the furniture is gone out of the room and there's nothing but just this expanse of carpet. And I was there by myself and I'm looking at the carpet. And I was conscious of the fact that I was trying to draw happiness out of the carpet. The narrow channel. I mean, it was like I had a little straw from my heart to the carpet and I was trying to suck happiness out of that carpet. I'm stretched out on the carpet. I'm looking at the carpet. And I had this very strong realization that no matter how much I loved the carpet, which, you know, I like the carpet, but it could never love me back. (laughs) It had no life force. It had no consciousness. It was an inert object. And I could project as much happiness toward it as as I wanted to. And I was doing it just partly for the fun of it, you might say, and for the experience of it. Okay, look, we have the carpet like this. But it just sat there. It gave me absolutely nothing. The only happiness I could get from the carpet is what I whipped up within myself. So Master says, go to the limitless source of joy. Go to the infinite. Go to the divine. Don't try to suck it out of the narrow channels of all the ephemeral things in this world. Even your dearest, beloved, you know, friends and family. They are a pleasure. Friendship is real. The enduring relationship between souls is eternal, in fact. But the happiness is in the soul union, not, as Master writes in here, uh, my family, my people. Let's see. They insist on monopolizing a small portion of this earth as their very own. Their constant thought is my home, my wife, my husband, my children. Material entanglements, and then Master uses this word, sweet and mysterious. Keep them dreaming through the sleep of delusion. They forget who and what they really are. Let's not dream through the sleep of delusion. This is what Master really wants us to understand. Now, let me see. There's another, there's one other thought. Master also says here, and this is very important, He says in number 11, people live too much vicariously in the opinions of others. If you want to have life and have it more abundantly as Jesus taught, you must begin by living your own life, not that of anyone else. Your primary concern should be how to win the love of God, not how to please your fellow man. That's a very deep and a very serious point. I've I spent, uh, recently I spent eight weeks traveling and um, sharing Master's teachings in India. Being born and raised an American, I have an extremely individualistic attitude toward life and an extremely individualist, individualistic self-definition. I expressed a few minutes ago the poignant experience with my father when he realized I was not going to make my life with him. Um, and... I've had to um, reflect a little bit when I'm I'm in the culture of India 
where family and social expectation is just it's just completely different than it is in America. What we take for granted in America is just simply not not the context in which people live there. So I have to answer people in a way that's useful to them. It's I mean I'm not there just to express myself. I'm there to help people understand Master's teachings in the way that Swamiji has taught us to share them, which is to help people to understand their own next step. If you're a seed, you have to become a sprout. If you're a sprout, you have to become a sapling. But Master is very strong on this on this point, and Swamiji has been too. In fact, so much so that I actually had to ask some of my friends. When Swamiji teaches in India, I said, knowing how strong the familial force is, I said, does he compromise on this point? And uh, they told me on several occasions when young women, which is often where the, the, the problem comes, women said to Swami, my family is trying to arrange a marriage for me, but I don't have any inclination to get married to the one they've selected or at all. And Swamiji's response was, it's your life. And there's a story in um, Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him, about Swamiji asking a man to do a certain, take on a certain responsibility. And the man answered, a young man answered, but if I did that, my mother would be disappointed. Meaning that he would take a direction in his life that was not what his mother had in mind for him. And Swamiji answered that man, we must all be prepared to disappoint our mothers like that. And that man was also Indian. Now, what I finally came to understand, and this is so obvious when you really stand back and think about it, is that we're born into the circumstances where the challenges are appropriate for what we have to learn. It's as simple as that. And this is a spiritual truth that we cannot base our life on what other people want us to do, we must first feel what will bring us closer to God, and then we may, may in fact be exactly right to cooperate with what other people want us to do. We can't be living in rebellion to the points of view of others. We have to simply be centered in ourselves and make our responses be the truth. I talked to an Indian friend in there uh, about this very point and he put it like this because he he's successful himself and he actually coaches others and in the circumstances of India not for everyone but for many people ah this is a learning edge which is how much do I live dutifully in the expectations of others and how much do I pull into my own spine feel God's guidance And if that is contradicted by the people around me, calmly, but firmly if necessary, hold to what I know to be true. And my friend said it very simply. His way of explaining is that you are never a victim. You are always responsible for your own destiny. And if you find yourself in circumstances when certain things are hard to do, because my mother, my father, my grandfather, my country, my culture, my upbringing, my this, well, that's just simply the edge of what you have to learn. You know, my, my particular personal karma has not been that, but, well, looking at my family of origin, my family of origin, my, my birth family that raised me, in addition to giving me certain fine values, also exacerbated certain terrible faults of mine. <laughs> and I, I, as I became aware of it, I began to wonder, why wasn't I born into a family that balanced me? 
Instead, they pushed me also in certain ways further into delusions. And I realized, well, that's my cutting edge of learning. I had to, I, I, that's where I wanted to go. So I chose a family that, you know, that allowed me to go into a delusion I was attached to until I had enough experience of it that I said, no, this is not really what I want. So it is that this world is perfect. Just as Anandamoyi Ma said, this world is perfect for the purpose for which it was created which is for us to use our God-given intelligence to solve the mystery in the right way, the true purpose of life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all fulfillments will be added unto us. God bless you.